0: Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who, along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks
1: for listening, and enjoy.
2: Good afternoon, and thank you again for joining us at the 2021 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Arthur Choi, and I'm a first year at MIT, at MIT Sloan, and it's my pleasure to introduce our panel, Superglue, Investigating Basketball Culture Versus Analytics. Our panelists today are Zach Lowe, Senior Writer, ESPN, David Fisdale, former head coach, New York Knicks, and Shane Battier, Vice President of Basketball Development and Analytics, Miami Heat. Our panel will be moderated by Adrian Wojnarowski, Senior NBA Insider, ESPN. The panel will run for 35 minutes and we'll leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please use the chat on the right side of the window for discussions during the panel. And please ask questions in the Q&A chat as well as Twitter using the hashtag, put me in coach, hashtag superglue. Questions will then be selected by the moderator. And with that, I'll turn it over to Adrian.
3: Uh, thank you, Arthur, and thanks everyone for joining us. And and thanks to this great panel, uh, Fizz and Shane Battier and uh, Zach Lowe. I, I, I'm going to start with Fizz here, um, and I think it's a question everyone can jump in on. But since th- we are almost to the fourth anniversary of Fizz's famous "Take That for Data" press conference uh, in the in that Grizzly Spurs series. Um, <laughs> We'll, we'll start with Fizz, which is when you think of a glue guy, Fizz, the definition of it and the player or players that come to mind, and for, for all of you guys, whether you played with them, whether you coached them, whether you covered them, who who comes to mind, who fits that definition, Fizz?
0: Well, you know, I think it starts off with what what I or everyone has their own definition of glue guy, right? But I really believe we mistake often just a guy who does the intangible stuff for a glue guy. And, you know, those are two different things. Shane Battier is a glue guy. He was a glue guy for us because it was more than just him doing the intangible things in preparation, understanding his opponent, uh, uh, blocking out on every possession, diving for every loose ball, executing every play to the nth detail, what a tangible guy would do. It was how he brought us together and his, the traits within him that allowed him to not only have the respect of the locker room, but to be able to get on guys and also get guys to come back in. And I think when i going through what I've gone through and seeing guys like him, the one thing that stood out to me most about Shane and guys in that position is they are very self-aware of who they are and where they are in the league and their position in the league. And so they never get out of their lane. So you can never look at them and say, well, they're selfish. They have an ego, they have this. And so Shane understood that he embodied it. And uh, I'll let somebody else take it from there. But that's kind of how I see the blue guy.
1: It is that's because I wasn't good enough to be an asshole. You know, that's, that's Hey, self-aware. <laughs> <laughs> if I was better, I would have been a real jerk. Hey, look. You Know, I, I was able to play a long time in in, in, in my basketball career, uh, really making a, a business out of, out of doing the little things. Um, but the guy, I, the guy I think about who was an alt the ultimate glue guy as a teammate was was Chuck Hayes. Chuck Hayes was six foot four on a good day, yeah. and here's a guy who's guarding Shaq. You know, Chuck couldn't dunk, You know, he's slapping the backboard in layup lines, all right, he couldn't jump, he was he, he had amazing feet. Uh, strong as a bull but there's no way a 6'4 center should have been as effective as he did and he did everything from getting loose balls to just making all the hustle plays and, and to me a catalyst just unlocks a team's potential you know allows people to, uh, to perform their role at a, at a higher level and uh, for, for me you know for someone who did that for my entire career watching playing with a guy like Chuck Hayes uh, just, uh, you know, made, made me proud. And, uh, he, he's my favorite glue guy of all time.
4: I think it, uh, by definition, a glue guy is, is not a star, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. It's not a star. So I think a lot of it is a glue guy has to be able to play with the stars and amplify what the stars do. And so to me, someone like Lou Williams is not quite a glue guy. He's sort of a – that that species of a sort of bench player is different than a glue guy. I think to, to Miami, and we got Miami royalty here almost across the board, I think the story of their season has almost been searching for the glue guy to replace what Jay Crowder was for them last year. And Jay Crowder, because he's a good enough shooter, good enough defender, like he just kind of locked their best lineups into place. There was just something that happened. And, and, and part of it also is – they make those little, and Shane was great at this, they make those little connecting plays from like point A to point C. There's an extra pass, there's a flare screen, there's a catch and go. Like they have to be good at connecting, even if it's connecting LeBron to Wade, like a LeBron to Bosch, one star to the other. You just know it when you see a guy, Trevor Ariza, who you guys just sort of signed in your search for a Jay Crowder, in his prime was a classic U guy. Amplify the stars, sort of play with the stars. You just know like, they can close games, right? That's another thing. You can be on the floor at the end of games and you just like the lineup just makes sense when, when that guy is in the lineup.
3: In this, in this age of analytics and, and the impact it's had on roster building and who plays and who doesn't play. Is that an area that it is maybe most challenging to put a, a numerical value on a player who does the things you all are describing um, might be easier with, with some other players. Is that the one area that maybe sometimes there's the most debate about between a coaching staff and a front office or, or even Zach, when you, when you're measuring um, value in a player that you're reporting on writing about?
4: I think it's, I think the hardest thing becomes, I, I look at um, sort of the, the, definitional glue guy right now in the NBA might be Mikhail bridges and Mikael Bridges is going to be a free agent this summer and he's going to make $20 million. I mean, he's going to make a salary that we don't associate with glue guys. And I think for front offices, that's the toughest challenges when we have stars, how much do we need to spend $20 million on Mikhail Bridges and how much of what Mikhail Bridges does for our stars? Could we find on the minimum and what is the bang for the buck? And I think it also, it depends how good your team is. I think when you're trying to win a championship, the difference between Mikhail Bridges and glue guy B in game seven of a high level playoff series is going to show up and it's going to be worth in the end, whatever you paid for it. But I think that's, I think when the glue guy goes from, Oh, feel good glue guy, whatever on his rookie contract or cheap veteran, you know, on the scrap heap to all of a sudden an expensive guy in his prime, you've got a decision to make as a front office is this worth paying for? And I, 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 suspect Phoenix will say yes. In the case of Mikhail Bridges, but that, that to me is the toughest part for teams.
1: Zach Zach, you just, you just uh, brought back some harsh memories for me. I mean, that, that was my entire career. I mean, literally like <laughs>
0: Undervalued. The,
1: the years that I was up for contract negotiations, I'll never forget Jerry West saying, you know what? Battier doesn't run pick and roll. He can't dribble. All right. he really can't finish, you know, he makes a corner three and plays defense. What else does he do? You know, I go to the Miami Heat many years later I say, man, Battier makes the corner three and he plays great defense. I don't care that he can't run a pick and roll. I can't care that he I don't care that he can't dribble. And so when we're talking about glue guys. So much of it the beauty is in the eye of the beholder in, in, in the situation. And mm-hmm. you know, the challenge for us as evaluators now is trying to find those guys maybe on teams where they don't um, have the opportunity to to uh, accentuate their strengths and instead their weaknesses get hammered. And that's, you know, a little close to home. That, that, was, my, that was my entire career. Yeah.
0: yeah, to slice the pie a little bit more, I think uh, my, my experience in New York was a very unique one from the standpoint of, you know, trying to, to figure out who those guys are, right? When you're starting with a team that has guys that's got to play above their station, That's coming in and seeing if they can do that, but also having a bunch of young guys that you really don't have enough data to to really be like, oh, this guy could do this. So you really have to go through pain of watching who can do what and collect enough information. And if you can survive that, you could possibly get to a place where you could build a team out. Uh, and find those guys within it. But I think if I was on another team trying to figure out who the glue guy is on a bad team, that seems to be very difficult. And they're on those teams. They're hiding in those teams. They just don't have that star or bookend stars to cover their warts. And so to really be able to look into a team that has lost or has been in the bottom of the league for a while and say, okay, that guy right there can really end up helping a team win. Uh, I think is one of the most difficult things. And, and the teams that, get, that have figured out how to strike that goal, um, you know, have really benefited from having that kind of keen eye and research and, and diligence about finding those people. Well, and
4: to, to some degree, it depends what kind of star you're building around, right? Like a glue guy for Nikola Jokic has to be a little different than a glue guy for Giannis Atentokounmpo, right? It's just a different kind of skill. Like Aaron Gordon is a perfect glue guy for Jokic would not be a perfect glue guy for Giannis, I don't think.
0: Right. Aaron Gordon and Giannis will crash right into each other, right? Whereas Jokic is going to make Aaron Gordon look like the greatest cutter, lob threat, you know, runner we've ever seen. Because that's what those guys do. Shane was saying it earlier. A glue guy does his job so well that it allows other people to do their jobs well, right? And so that's what that's going to, you're going to see that fit come together very well there.
3: If as a a coach, did you look at it as that the eye test was there to validate the numbers or the numbers were there to validate the eye test, kind of that coach front office? How did you view it as a coach? And was that maybe sometimes uh, push and pull with an organization?
0: It can be push and pull in the organization, but I always tried to give it fair weight and give things as much equality in it as possible and not dismiss or accentuate one over the other. So if I if I got to see the film first on a the guy, then there was no way I could really make a true decision about him until I put the rest of the picture together, which was the analytics and the numbers and things like that. Vice versa, same thing. If I got to look at the numbers on a guy and I really could see this beautiful picture of, okay, this is who this guy is on paper. I couldn't make a sound decision without getting on the film and really getting into what happens on the court. And in those two things, if you just sit back and let them do what they do and don't try to judge it too much. Cause that's what I think our biggest issue is we're all the the super smart people who can judge a guy and I can pick a player and I can just get out of the way and step back and let the film and the, and the numbers tell you as much of that as possible. And then the rest of it is, you know, obviously the personal, are you doing, are you finding out who this person is, you know, their habits as a human being, where they're from, the coaches that's coached them, yada, yada, yada. But I give all of that stuff equal weight in the, in the process of evaluation. And I try to leave my ego and my judgment as far out of it as possible. Shane, how,
3: how does that in a, in an organization where there is great premium in Miami put on intangibles and character, and fitting into uh, how you do things in Miami, what your values are, um, the kind of guys Spo wants to coach, all of those factors, um, and then the numbers and how they play in and how you weight them. Uh, some places have they're always they're changing coaches, they're changing front office, what they value in in, in a player or their style. It's constantly changing. It's been you know, it's pretty cemented in your place. Is, is it, th- does it change how you find the balance here as an organization in, in, in measuring, uh, measuring these things
1: out? Yeah, well, it starts with our, our scouts. And we have tremendous scouts and Adam Simon, Chuck Cameron, Eric Hamsler, Keith Askins, uh, Bob McAdoo. You know, the first question is, do those guys fit in what we believe in and, and being in great shape, being about the team above all? Uh, You know, the main thing is the main thing. That's the, that's the famous Pat Riley saying. And so that's like the the, the number one, number two, number three criteria for a player we're evaluating to bring in. Can they live that life and and fit into that, those cultural aspects. Um, And, you know the race is on to try to quantify these things. You know, I know this is analytics conference. We have some brilliant people out there, you know, the race is on, we're all trying to figure out ways to to, to, to measure that and empiricize those things. Um, but, but right now, the the sort of the soft skills of evaluating a player's humility, his selflessness, his desire to see his teammates do well, you know, his level of drama he brings to the, the, the gym every day. Um, his willingness to ask questions and, 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 and and be vulnerable. Like those are all glue guy attributes, right? There's not any great metric for, but if you saw those qualities as a scout or as a coach or as a GM, you say, yeah, that that guy has it, has it in him. Um, But, but, but the race is on to try to put a number to all those, those qualities. Well, that's the thing that's so
4: hard, right? When you're trying to figure out who to draft, you can ask guys, all these questions, you know, do you care about winning or what would you do? What would you do if you found out one of your teammates was Pat, Pat asked this question. What would you do if you found out one of your teammates was burning the candle at both ends and you thought it was hurting the team? You know, what would you do? Would you come to me? Would you go to the coach? Uh, you can have them take surveys, but the players when you're drafting them are smart enough to know exactly what you want to hear and what to say. So it's hard to sort of figure out um, the, the psychological analytics, I think, are going to be the last frontier of all this. And I don't know if we'll ever get to kind of a, a super reliable place with them, particularly when you're trying to figure out, I mean, the most important decision you make as a franchise is who do we draft into our team? Because that's our opportunity to find a guy who can be on our team for six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years.
0: I think uh, not to keep, stay too far on the topic, but I think a place where we're all missing out and we live in this world of versus too much is we're, we're losing our sages right now. And, and I think it's a great opportunity for analytics to connect with the sages of basketball and get into their mind about what is a winning player? What are the things that we don't keep numbers on that was important to you as a coach? You know, the, 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 the people don't talk about enough. The unfair advantage that Miami has is they have Pat Riley sitting upstairs. He is a sage. He has seen it all, done it all. He, the whole thing was built on mistakes and getting it right and over and over and over again. And we don't, it's enough of them that's sitting out of the game right now who all we see them as is just this basketball person but they have incredible information that I think can connect the dots in a lot of these areas on how do we quantify these type of players and not let them fall through the cracks or someone else, just a couple of teams end up being the guys that's always landing them.
1: You know, to to your point, Fizz, you know, and I get a bunch of young aspiring data scientists and and engineers say, how do I break in? What what should I do now? I tell them take a behavioral economics class, take a (laughs) psychology class. All right. There are everyone watching here. I'm sure can, can, Run great random forests and and code and R and and SQL and all these, all these great things, uh, but the human element it's not going to go out of the game, and and so it's it's the teams that are able to marry the psychological with the empirical that are going to win, they're going to win, and so the the, the constant push for uh, for you know for my team is always hey how can we model what Pat Raleigh thinks better how can we model what Andy Ellisberg thinks better and it's really, really tough problems. We're dealing with people Uh, and biases, Uh, but it's, you know, so if you're listening, mix in a psychology class, all right? Don't just, don't, you know. I'm doing it it now myself.
0: (laughs) I'm studying psychology myself right now, so he's giving you great advice.
3: (laughs) Uh, Zach, I think Fizz and and Shane brought up a really, a broader question, I think, and Zach, in your conversations you have every day over a number of years with people in front offices and coaching staffs and agents and and everybody who makes up the the sport, obviously players, have you seen something of a battle line drawn between basketball culture, what we might consider traditional basketball culture, what Fizz is talking about experience in the game versus the numbers and analytics, um, how pronounced of a gulf has that been in the league and uh, over really these last you know number of years that that analytics have played a, a bigger part in, in everything
4: uh, around the game. I do think it exists. I mean, as much as we kind of want to wish it away and say, Oh no, the truth is in the middle. Everybody knows that now there's no divide. There, there's no money ball thing where the scouts are, you know, where the analytics guys and the scouts are laughing at each other in the, in Billy beans conference room there is still, there are still elements and there definitely is a sort of a culture clash, just in terms of the basic like background of where most analytics people come from versus where most basketball people come from. But um, you you said something before that jogged my memory about this is, did you want, do you want the numbers to validate what you already think as a coach? And I think the answer to that question is still quite often, yes, I'm interested in hearing numbers that represent what I already know. And on the same, on, on the flip side, there are still there's still a strain of front office analytics person who the numbers are the answer and that's it. And and they and and again, it's not very many, but it still exists. It's not the majority, but it still exists about the numbers fighting against the numbers, even if you bring good data, even if you bring film, is gonna be hard to have a conversation with that person. And that's why what Fizz said before resonated. Like the truth is there if you have the patience to let both of those things sing. So like the human element measuring the human element. Well, I mean, you can measure on court manifestations of it. Now you can measure how often a player boxes out. You can measure how often you can measure how, how well a team does when player X is defending the screener in a pick and roll. And sometimes the numbers in that will look very different one season versus the next season. Then you have to ask, well, why is that? What scheme was he playing in? And that's when you start watching the film. And if you just do all that work, if if you mesh all that work together, you will come somewhere close to whatever is the best answer we have at that moment. And that answer could change when you put that guy into a new scheme. But so so that gap does exist. And it just it takes a lot of work and a lot of a lot of sort of cultural uh, blending a lot of a lot of a lot of people in the front office and the coaching staff are willing to sit and listen to each other and not assume that what they already know is absolutely 100 percent right. Well, you know? I, think, I think that's
1: why the glue guy question is is, is really difficult because uh, it takes a lot of time. It's, it's not it's not e- it's, it's not an easy conversation. It's easy to go out and 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 see some of our great all stars say, look, they're bucket getters. They're going to make us better and. Uh, you know, we talked, we laughed about this before. You, you, got, you got to squint sometimes when you're trying to evaluate a glue guy on another team and say, well, can he fit this? Can he fit this role? And, you know, can he build trust? Can he build belief in, in winning here? And that's ultimately what a glue guy does. He, he instills belief and he instills trust. And those are the things that bind championship teams together, which we're all trying to, to, to figure out and, and, and enhance.
0: He said it best.
3: (laughs) You know, uh, something I've wondered in the pandemic, and scouting has changed in the pandemic, how you can go out and evaluate players, who you can see in a practice. Typically, Shane, you could go out and scout the McDonald's All-American practices for a week, and that might be the first glimpse you can get at guys who might be a one-and-done the following year or guys who might even be going into the G League uh, uh, Ignite system. Same with um, summer league, all the things that's been lost. And then at the lower levels in high school, that players have not been together. Teams have been not in the gym for an extended period, and they're going to work their way back in. I wonder how you think, number one, guys, it's going to impact the development of those characteristics in young players when they have been separated away from team. And then number two, how you evaluate those things. Now, I imagine it's all going to be a lot harder here in this next draft cycle, maybe even another draft cycle, Uh, or again, how you evaluate the G League. You had a very tight window in the bubble to see guys play. Not every team sent their players. What's going to be the longer term impact on finding these players, identifying them um, because of the pandemic?
0: Well, oh, you want shining.
1: Well, well, per- personally, um, look, if it were easy and the draft was completely efficient and the top thirty players went picks one through thirty, there's no fun in that, right? And so, sort of the chaos and the puzzle—that's where opportunity lies. That's where surplus lies. And so, you know, now you have to have a game. <laughs> you, you have to have a game in the, on the court, but you got to have a game in the front office, yep. and so there's there's opportunities abound, and so we don't look at it as as necessarily a negative thing. Is it tougher? Absolutely, but there's chances to to hone your processes and dig deeper, and you can unearth some 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 gems at cost. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, like, look, we, we won't know the the effects of, of COVID on our young people for for many years. Um, it's tough on everybody, but it's, it's especially tough for developing brains and developing bodies. And uh, it's, we don't have the answer to that right now. Uh, But like I said, the the chaos always creates opportunity. I think the smart teams will take advantage of that.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I was going to say it's a money ball, not to keep bringing it up, but it is, it's a money ball attitude, adapt or die. Right. So I think it's an opportunity to, to squeeze out the inefficient ways of looking at players and the, the, the outdated ways of looking at players because you have to you have to get outside of what you're comfortable with you have to get outside of what you do all the time and I, like you said I think that's that poses great opportunity for you to now become uh, you know way more innovative and creative and I think it it it, uh, it opens up space for you to become more intimate and know the guy better because it's gonna be more stuff like this where you, you have to do more interacting and communicating and and actually talking to people, uh, even though it's virtual, uh, because that's where the hard work, a lot of that hard work is done right here. And so uh, I totally agree with that. I think it's opportunistic and, and it allows you to trim the fat of what you have been doing all of these years. And probably it really highlights the things that have not been efficient enough in what you've been doing. And it's like, okay, let's cut that. And now we can work much more efficiently and streamline.
4: In, in a strange way i think the pandemic and the effects on in-person scouting has sort of placed even more value on the very oldest skill in not only sports but every industry which is getting to know people gaining their trust and getting to know them over a lot of years because now for the last year with some you'd have great you've had great limitations on how many practices can i go to how many games can i go to how many people can i actually see what can i observe with my eyes and it's rewarded the people who can call every coach on a college coaching staff, just boom, they've already got the contacts. They have that guy's trust or that woman's trust, and they will tell them the real story about this draft prospect or that prospect. It's, it's it's sort of bizarrely rewarded the oldest kind of skill that there is and, and reminded and, and Woj, I'm sure you hear teams, guys on teams talk about this all the time, the importance of Intel, 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 like we can watch all, I can watch every Gonzaga game right now on my laptop, but there's no replacing you know, can I get the fifth assistant on Gonzaga to tell me the truth about this guy's off-court habits?
0: Right. And can you, can you really get to see how a coach and a player interacts in the heat of the battle? A lot of that stuff you don't catch on film. You know what I mean? Like if a guy is, and the coach is just spitting at each other over there, but it went the other way and it's not caught on film, or you're not there to see it, we don't know this stuff. We don't get to see that intimately. So you, you have to get the trust built. And like I said, more of this, because you have to do more of this, I think you'll find out, you know, you'll, you'll be able to build those relationships. Shane, do you find
3: players value any differently? The, the things we're talking about as a glue guy and all the components to how it impacts a team, is it valued among players or even young players coming into the league or established guys? Does it seem any different than when you played? and your peers, how you viewed uh, that role, the importance of it, and that, hey, listen, you can hang around the league a long time um, if you can show people value in those areas without without being a star.
1: Look, there's no manual on how to become an NBA basketball player for 15 years, right? So everyone, when they come into the league, they have their idea of like, what, what do I have to do to play 15 years? And to a, to a person, everyone's gonna say, I gotta average, I got average, you know, double digits, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, you know, I, I love the, uh, the the sign, not everyone can grow up to be an astronaut, right? <laughs> so you gotta have some people in to the control tower. And it's the people I, I think that have um, sort of a professional humility and an, an adaptability. And again, like Fizz said, a self awareness of like, okay, what do I need to do to stay on the court? Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's all I do. Did. Like I, I, I didn't set out to be like, Hey, I want to be a great charge taker. I want to die for loose balls. I want to be the best in the league at running back and transition defense. All right. You don't dream to be that, but you realize because you have self-awareness that like, those are the things that earn you playing time and earning playing time gives you a chance uh, to ask more at your contract time and bigger, the contract longer, the years, the better lifestyle I'm going to have when I'm old and gray, like I am now and play a lot of golf. Uh, and so the people who are self-aware, like this said, figure that out and they figure out what do I need to do to stay on the court, impact my team to win. Um, because you know, most players are financially motivated in this game. They're going to do what it takes to long, you know, make their career as long as they can. Um, but there's no one, you. there's no one telling you that, you know, right. Twitter's not telling you that, you know, the media is not telling you that a coach, he'll tell you that you may not grasp that language but uh what do i have to do to stay on the court and, and that, that's
0: not that, easy that's, right
1: yeah
0: it's not easy for a guy you're talking about a young kid that was a star wherever he was at most likely in college he goes to the g league he's probably a star in the g league if he's going to get called up to the league so now this guy has to be able to switch that mindset from i'm the guy." to being I'm the guy next to the guy. <laughs> and I'm the guy now having to do the things that Shane is talking about to stay on the court. I'm not going to get those opportunities to do the other stuff that I usually do. And so, again, to be able to make that – that the biggest – the guys that make it are the guys that can make that switch. Because Shane was a star, whether we like it or not. We got to remember old Shane Battier at Duke. National that player was, of the was, year in college. Come on, man. This yeah. dude was the stud. And so – is again you, the humility and, and to be able to check your ego and say is what's the big picture to this and what's the long the long game to this and to be able to execute that consistently um I think are, those are the guys that make it and know and the difference between the guys that make it and then the guys that stay in the G League or the guys that go overseas that's bitching about getting screwed <laughs> right
4: well, I, I think connected to that though and both you guys could speak to this from a very personal level is sort of how do you know when you've earned the trust of the best players on the team, when they trust you to be on the floor with them at the end of games and what does it take? And, and connected to that sort of like, without naming names, do you, can you think of guys who never, who never earned that trust and you, and you saw it happen. You saw like whatever star you want to talk about, you saw it happen like this for whatever reason, he missed too many shots or he blew a defense, whatever it was, he, he didn't have that trust that he could be a glue guy.
0: Well, I would say I'll go first, Shane. I would say the stars tell you who to put on the floor. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> okay. It wasn't like Miss Poe and I were sitting over there, like, oh, let's see, let's put. They were like, get Shane in the game, get Ray Allen in the game. And, you know, it was it was pretty clear who was gonna play. But it, if you're honest and upfront all the way throughout, and and, and transparent throughout. Whether it's coach to player, player to coach, or players to players, um, you know clearly who's earned that trust and who hasn't. And and every it's a collective understanding that certain guys just aren't going to be on the court at the end of games, and certain guys are. And coaches go into end of game situations, late game situations, with a with a almost like a pecking order of like okay, here's my here's my top seven guys that I can play late in games, whether if a guy gets in foul trouble or a guy gets hurt, I know I can depend on these guys come hella high water. Uh, and the rest of those guys are great for, during the game, but at the end, I'm not touching them. And so that's a collective understanding that you build through transparency and trust over the course of a
1: season. And, you know, it doesn't start like at the end of games and works backwards. It starts like, Guys know who gets to practice early, who gets to practice, you know, smelling like the club last night, who doesn't, right? Who's always prepared? Who knows the scouting reports? All right. Coaches aren't the only ones who know this. You know, the the trainers know this, the equipment managers know this. Everybody knows who's prepared and who's not. And, you know, it's it's the old Bill Belichick do your job. Do your job. And it's not about going out making crazy plays, it's about doing what you're asked to do in the scheme of, of, of what the team philosophy is and the people who do that most consistently are the people who have the trust and regardless of how many points you average or what your pedigree is or how many shoes you sell is the people who do their jobs the best most consistently are the people who earn that trust
3: well i, I think i think we're going to start to take some questions from the audience uh, arthur our host here has sent some along i, I think uh our panel can see him i'm going to start with this one for the whole group, uh, what percentage, uh, what percentage of a glue guy is on the court versus the impact he would have in the locker room or practice? So, is it possible to be a great glue player and not see much playing time? I think there's a guy in Miami. I was going to say we're asking we're asking the right people. We're asking the right guys about this. There's a guy in Miami who's had that role for a number of years now. But, but, but your your thoughts on that? The weight of off the court versus on the court impact.
0: Shano, you want to take it yeah, first? Yeah, I
1: mean we we got the we got you know the OG Udonis. He's the best, and you know Udonis doesn't log Udonis has him, doesn't log very many minutes, but there's absolutely, absolutely no question he adds to our team fabric. Right? He may, he holds guys accountable. He makes sure his guys get to practice on time. He asks the right questions in, in meetings. And all those little, all those little things are like they're positive EV plays, okay? And they, they'll never show up on a box, a box score, mm-hmm. but all those little positive EV plays that Adonis makes by speaking up, by telling a guy to get his ass back on defense, those all are winning plays, and contribute to the final score, and contribute to team belief. And so, absolutely, yes, it's obvious when guys play and make plays in the basketball court, but a glue guy can can impact off the court as well. It's tough to put a percentage on it, but absolutely the the, the value transcends the basketball court.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with Shane, and, and Udonis is a great example. Jawan Howard was at when he played with for us. Uh, Shane can attest to that. Jawan would play three minutes at the end of the first quarter just to give Chris Bosch a break, and then he wouldn't see the game, you know, the rest of the game. And this is a guy that at that point had played 17 years. But I think to be the guy you're talking about, you have to be a guy that has logged the minutes, a guy that's fought the wars, a guy that has really built up a resume so that if I'm not playing, the respect level is still there that you have done it on the highest levels. And I think that's what allows you, Udonis Haslam to really be as vocal as he is. When you haven't done that, there is still a way to be that guy, but it won't be as much of using your voice. You have to do the, what Shane was talking about. I'm there first every day, get working on my game. I'm asking the right questions. I'm engaged in the film sessions. I'm staying after practice. I'm taking care of my body. I'm getting sleep. I'm, I'm, I'm getting other guys to do the right things. Um, but it's not using your voice necessarily or you know, trying to bark at everybody and tell everybody how screwed up they are or how great they are, any of that. It's more through your actions and example. And there are definitely guys, and I, like I said, I can't put a percentage on that, but there are definitely guys. Like for me, Damian Dotson was embodied all of that. You know, here's a guy that was in and out of the rotation for me, we weren't winning. He could have been bitter, all of these things, but every day, showed up first, stayed late, you know, grabbed other guys, asked the right questions, kept guys upbeat coming coming into the huddle. And that's why he always performed when I put him in the game. He was always you know, away from, he wasn't attaching himself to not playing. Um, and so those guys exist. And and the guys that really understand how to go about being that example and not the voice end up becoming the voice later.
4: See, that's, what's interesting though, about what you brought up before Fizz about how these guys are hiding on teams yeah. that aren't good is that no one is going to know that about Damian Dotson because you guys weren't winning. And on the flip side, like no one would care. I mean, I don't, I hate to be harsh about it, but, Nobody would care about Udonis Haslam's vocal leadership if the Heat were just mediocre every season. No. And so it, it has to, finding those guys and knowing that they exist outside of, of a winning circumstances is, is really real. And, on the, and, and I give a lot of credit to guys like Damian Dotson. It has to, it takes work to be that guy every day when you're receiving no attention for it and you don't even know. Do the other 29 teams have have any idea that I'm
0: a good guy? Like, does anyone know this? It's it's hard hard to do. And that's why it's critical for coaches to always try to sit at a distance to where and value guys like that and express value to them. And that's why Damian, even to this day, we have a close relationship because I always would make sure that he understood what you're doing is valuable. Don't think I'm not seeing what you're doing, don't think people aren't paying attention. And don't think the people, when they call for you to say, who is Damian Dotson, don't you think for one second that everybody in this building isn't going to say great things about you because you're leading such a professional example. And I always tried to highlight that as a coach. And I think uh, as, as a collective basketball group, the more we can say that to players in those situations and get them outside of me, 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 we can create more of these guys around the league. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned
3: Juwan Howard in that context of being that player at the end of his career, and and that might be more rare because Juwan Howard was uh, an All Star, and he was yeah. he was a hundred million dollar contract guy. He knew what it was to be a star and have a team built around him, and then, but also could transition into that role late in his career. I, I wonder if how many guys do you see who get knocked, maybe get knocked down early in their career. They come in, I'm a lottery pick. I think I'm going to have that kind of a career. And all of a sudden, they get waived. They get waived in the G League. They bounce around. And then they sort of get a second win to their career. Sometimes, you know, if they were a one and done, and maybe around 22, 23, 24, they grab hold of, I've got to change. I've got to look at this league differently to belong in it. Is that a whole other subset of players who – who evolved into this guy, don't necessarily come into the league. You weren't scouting him or evaluating him thinking he necessarily
0: had those qualities. I mean, I would say at the end of the day, the, the thing that has forced me to change in my life and that I've seen make other people change in their life is suffering. When you suffer and you really suffer, and now you have to really take a hard look at yourself when guys are do that, when they self-evaluate, you know, with with purity and, and just, you know, with with no blinders on, a lot of times you'll see those guys make their way back because now they have a, a more realistic picture of this NBA life and, and how they fit into it. And so mm-hmm. I do believe that the the getting punched a lot of times is good. For a lot of these guys, because you got to think about their life track. Most of them, as soon as they get into the AAU circuit, are probably already projected to be this great player and this top pick and this all of this other stuff. And so, you know, a lot of times they've never been punched. They've never fallen. They've never suffered the the the, the what you know what you go through when on a public stage, I just failed. I have to, I, I gotta get up. And now I got to rebuild myself, and so I think a lot of times that's good for them. And I do believe that the suffering uh, often is the thing that forces those guys to figure it out. In a well, lot of well, ways, I
4: I think that's the real that's the real NBA or is that story. <laughs> the real NBA is not LeBron and yeah, I mean those guys are the guys that drive winning at the highest levels. But the real NBA is the 250 guys below that, many of whom have had a career path just like you. Just like you described it, I think those are the most fun stories to tell. Frankly, well, yeah, you Zach did a piece last year on Ben McLemore
3: and the career Ben McLemore has had, and where he was coming out of Kansas and the path he took, and now he's on his way to the Lakers. And those are the most compelling stories because, again, that is that is more than normal. There are a lot more of those guys than there are yeah. all stars, and and um and and i think it 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 plays a big role in um you know how we find these guys one interesting question here um the impact of the decreasing age of nba rosters uh and how that impacts having these glue guys on your roster who tend to sometimes be older veteran players is that is that a factor now for for teams in this league
1: That's a good question. That's a good question. You know, I, I always like to think that, like, look, players that know how to make winning plays have always made winning plays. All right. That's not something that you figure out when you're 28 years old. Oh, this is a winning play. I, I should make it more. <laughs> <laughs> these are these are kids in, in high school and and in college that just, just have a, a sixth sense about making the right play. And as, as I'm glamorous, setting a good screen. Like, just notice that a set good screen. Or getting a loose ball and 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 i was reading something the other day i forgot who said it but it's like look you know win- winners are winners you don't learn to win when you're 30 and become this new this new person
0: i i he can't i mean can you say it any better i just i you know he when you talk about these guys it's not like because i'm a coach a lot of times we're looked to to create or recreate these shane battiers and i'm like Shit, I don't know how to make that. Like, (laughs) I mean, I don't know what to do to glue those pieces together. What makes a guy like that tick so selflessly? You know, like that's something innate. I really believe, I totally agree with him that there's an innate unselfishness about you where you see things in a different way. You see things from a a chain reaction way instead of being the the guy that receives the reward all the time you see how the dominoes fall. And some people just have a natural understanding of how to do that. Even old slow coach Fizz in my short playing career was a batty type. Like I just, I, cause I knew I couldn't shoot. I couldn't score. So I had to guard. I had to make the right pass. I had to know the offense and defensive system better than everybody else. And cause I wanted to play. And But that was always who I was my whole life. I was always the slow, light-skinned kid who had to figure out how to get on the court. And so that started with me years before. And all of my friends and players I coached that were that guy, you saw it in them way back, you know, and throughout their, throughout their life. And so that's why the, the, the part we talk about, when how do you find them? You got to talk to people. You have to really spend time talking to people that know this guy and listen for key things, not the BS talk, but the key trigger things that can tell you, yeah, this is my kind of guy.
4: But at the the same time about the young roster, part of the question is, you know, the analytics tell you what has happened. The hardest thing in the NBA is figuring out what's going to happen. And a lot of guys, and we've all learned this from various guys that we went out on too early or we whatever. Like a lot of guys, if they're diligent and they work, are going to keep getting better in ways that surprise you based on where they are when they're 26, based on where they compared to where they were when they were 22. And it's, it's hard. That's the hardest thing is who is going to be that, who is going to improve at that rate. And even a guy like Tobias Harris is still getting better. And what is he, what is he like 28? I mean, he came into the league. He was a TD. He's still getting better. It's that's, that's the, we tend to watch these guys and get caught up in what they're doing right now. I was, I've been thinking a lot about the Spurs lately. They have all these young guys and you, you hear front office people around the league saying, Oh, they don't have any all-stars on their team. There's not a future all-star on that team. I mean, probably not. It's hard to make an all-star team, but I don't know what Keldon Johnson's going to be when he's 25 years old, he's 20, he's already pretty good. And he's 20. Like they, that's the hardest part
3: guys. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, I was honored to, uh, uh moderate this panel. Shane Battier, David Fisdale, Zach Lowe. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us and, uh, uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy the rest of the, uh, Sloan and enjoy the rest of, uh, the sprint we have left in an NBA season.
1: Thanks guys.